2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Well, for every follower of Jesus, there will always be challenges in the Christian life. If everything was going to be easy, then everybody would be a Christian, but that's why everybody's not a Christian. Yet the Lord wants us to be uh, growing strong in the troubled times of, of life. As we come to the Apostle Paul's letter of 2 Thessalonians, it's important to know or remember a few things. Are you getting feedback? No? Okay. Remind me to tell the guys to edit that out of the message. <laughs> and uh, a few things we want to remember about the Thessalonian church as we are now in 2 Thessalonians is, number one, it is a young church. It's a young church. So there's a lot of newer believers in it. And a church with new believers is an exciting thing, isn't it? It's an exciting church, yet there'll always be the challenges that zeal brings. You know, they're just, you, it's trying to, kind of hard to find the right balance between, you know, reining people in a little bit, but not reining them in so much that they don't want to be uh, daring and uh, taking chances for the Lord. Uh, another thing is that they are a persecuted church. And certainly the Apostle Paul relates to that. He used to be the persecutor, but now he's the person. Now he's the preacher who gets persecuted. And what they're doing is they're getting heat from the outside, yet they continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were also a confused church. What had been going on was some false teachers had come in from the outside and tied them in knots on the end times, also tied them in knots on some of the teachings of the Apostle Paul. And, of course, there were other issues. Whenever you put people in a room, there's going to be issues, that's for sure. One of the issues that they had was laziness, as we see that some of the people were thinking, well, if the Lord's coming soon, why should I bother go and work? Why don't I just, you know, just wait for him to, to show up? And then what happens is if nobody works, then everybody becomes a burden upon everybody else. So that's why we say it's good to be generous, but don't give everything away because then we have to take care of you. And so that was kind of uh, you know, the, the non-working environment for some of them. Now, it's interesting, this letter is written only uh, a matter of weeks or months since the Apostle Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians. So it puts us at about 50, 51 AD. I mean, Jesus has not even been gone 20 years yet. And, and what happened was the letter of 1 Thessalonians went to them, and then reports came back to the Apostle Paul uh, about what was going on and some of the reactions to what he said and some things that needed to be cleared up. This letter is not as personal as 1 Thessalonians. It's more what we might call issue, or as we often say, task-oriented. Uh, it has a greater sense of urgency about it, particularly a greater sense of urgency in being obedient to the word of the Lord. Now, the good news is that they are continuing to grow, these young Christians, this young church or group of churches, even in the midst of painful trials. The bad news is the opposition hates that. So you know if you're a growing Christian, you're excited about the things of God, some of the people around you can't stand you for that. <laughs> Because you just, you know, you might bring conviction to them or you might just simply be annoying. I don't know which, is, which it is or maybe it's some combination. So uh, who were the Thessalonians? There are people who lived in the city of Thessalonica in Greece, still there today. Over a million people live there today. And uh, it's a busy seaport city. It was back then uh, with a very diverse population. Uh, when we were in 1 Thessalonians, we went back to Acts chapter 17, which you can read that about the founding of the church. And it was an ideal city for the Apostle Paul to start a church, but it was also strategically located, ideal because of its diversity, but also because of its strategic location to influence the region. And it did because those churches kept spreading out uh, to, to share the good news with people. So the Apostle Paul went there uh, on his second missionary journey, and it didn't take long for a church to be established. And whenever it doesn't take long for a church to be established, or things are going, you know, the gospel ministry is going forward, the enemy is not be far behind, and he 
had them run Paul and Timothy and Silas out of town. Now, what a lesson for us. I think there's a great lesson for us that true gospel ministry will be attacked. Uh, It's probably not what you wanted to hear, but it's the truth. True gospel ministry will be attacked. And I know a lot of people say, yeah, I had a hard day today. I'm not so sure it's that easy. I think it's when it attacks you, it's not just with a hard day, but it could be in many circumstances a hard life as the enemy is going to try and discourage you and the people in the church. Um, In classic enemy of God fashion, we see in Thessalonica, the enemy went after the leader, the Apostle Paul, tries to get rid of him, and then sows the seeds of doubt in the people of God about the Apostle Paul. And then the onslaught begins against the people of God by attempting to grow that doubt in a whole variety of different ways. For them, it was persecution, people really against what they were doing. I think for most of us, it's a little bit different. I mean, we've, we have some persecution, but any of you boiled in oil recently? Just checking, you know, fed to the lions recently? It's, it could be possible. J. Vernon McGee said that Daniel, he, he survived the lion's den because he was mostly made of grizzle and backbone, so that could be, that could be someone here. And, and so for us, though, I think a lot of times it's, it's, it's suffering, just different types of suffering that we go through and other kinds of very, very difficult things in our lives. But the purpose is basically the same, to make you ineffective and to eventually get you to quit. That's really what the end game is. How the enemy is going to get you there, well, that's going to vary on a lot of different things. Yet, as we're going to see, and, and this chapter has some really unusual stuff in it for, for our, again, our, for our way of thinking, in tough times, or it is tough times, that reveal the genuineness of our faith. If you really want to know how good your faith is, wait until the tough times come because um, tough times will wither a false faith. It'll, it'll really fall apart at the seams. It may be a slow falling apart, but it will eventually fall apart. So verse 1, the letter begins similar to First Thessalonians. Paul, Silvanus, that's Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So both, they're they're both there stated at the same time, Lord Jesus and God our Father, the idea is equality. Verse 2, I want to read twice, uh, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So grace, what is grace? That's God's gift to you. What did we do to deserve it? We did nothing. It's not, it goes far beyond the forgiveness of sins. It's grace of so many things. They're, they're enduring. They're getting the grace of endurance, and the grace of growth is part of the byproduct of it. And so uh, grace allows us to have a privilege, the privilege of having a relationship with the Lord. Grace to you and peace. It's always in that order. Peace is the result of receiving his grace. And... By putting, our, by putting our trust in Jesus Christ, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, there's the two of them again, grace of God, empowers service, and peace with God, and that is the focus of really so much of the Apostle Paul's ministry. So the Apostle Paul is very clear here. God is the source, the only source, the only true source of grace and peace. And in this, we see that Jesus and the Father are the source, equal source, single source, if you will. So those who receive the Lord Jesus as Lord and Savior receive the grace of God and rest in the peace of God and the Lord Jesus, and they then join the family of God. Thus, they find themselves, when you get yourself to this place, if you have not yet trusted in Jesus, we're glad you're here. We hope you will trust in Jesus tonight. They find themselves in 
and, an ex- and experience a relationship with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, again, as part of the family of God. And these are the things that we associate with being a true follower of Jesus, a true Christian. So make no mistake about it. Grace, peace, a relationship with God, this is the foundation of the Christian life. This is the anchor in the storm of the Christian life and of the church. You don't really have a Christian life unless you have a relationship with the Lord Jesus. Verse 3, he says, we, and he includes the guys that are with him, are bound. Now, this is a very interesting word, uh, meaning he's saying we have an obligation to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting. Why is it fitting? Because your faith grows exceedingly, and there's more. He's thanking God for this, and there's more. The love of every one of you all abounds towards each other. Verse 4, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God. So why would they be telling other churches about them? For your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Everything that's going on, other people might be looking at what's going on with you guys and thinking, man, everything is falling apart. But you guys, in the midst of falling apart, you're still growing. In the midst of falling apart, you're loving more. And in the midst of things falling apart, you are enduring. Now, most Bible scholars think that this uh, persecution is probably coming where it originally came from. The religious leaders in the synagogue who were headed out for the Apostle Paul, they drove him out of town, again, Acts chapter 17. But now it seems to be getting worse. And what's really interesting is the Apostle Paul is offering them encouragement to build them up to counter the fact that the enemy was hard at work trying to tear them down. So you see the two forces are, are at work here. There's the, there's the trying to tear them down, and there is the encouragement. Yet as we move forward, we notice something, dare I say, very un-American about the Apostle Paul, and that's where his focus lies. See, I think for a lot of us as American Christians, we tend to, except for all the retirement commercials that are on television all the time, we, we tend to live in the here and now. And, and we focus on, on today and our comfort, and we want things to be easy. And the Apostle Paul, though, his main focus is on something very different. His main focus is on God's uh, plans and purposes and eternal issues. He's, he's far less concerned about the temporary situation that he finds himself in and that they find themselves in. In fact, he's going to be talking to them about how their situation and their response to the situation is actually an encouraging confirmation to them that they are indeed true Christians, that they are indeed followers of God. Now, we are, as Americans, culturally conditioned to measure life by how things are now. Do you ever hear something or read something and people saying, we want you to do this so you get the life you deserve, right? That is far from biblical teaching, isn't it? And and here's the thing, when you focus on the here and now and and you think that you deserve something, uh, God can easily become a genie in a bottle, can't he? Or as we say with the teenagers, we say he becomes vending machine God, you know? And so you just have, you know, what you want, and you, G3, and oh, it pops out, thanks God, right? And, uh, and of course, we don't even want to put any money in it. We just want free vending machine, just, you know, the ideal kind of thing. And so we have to be very careful of that. Yet the Apostle Paul looks at the Thessalonians, and he, he actually thanks God that their faith is growing when things are going wrong. Now, see, the apostles sees their faith as flourishing. A lot of times when people are having difficult times, you're like, oh, poor them. 
He's not like that. He's like, oh, God, I'm thankful for these guys. Their faith is flourishing as they are yielded to the Holy Spirit and the word of God. And as they are yielded to the Holy Spirit and the word of God and obey the word of God, they experience the Holy Spirit's power. That's why he thanks God and not them. He doesn't say, hey, guys, thanks for doing what I told you. He doesn't say that. Nothing wrong with thanking people for for things. But no, he thanks God for what, what he's doing in them. Plus, by thanking God and not thanking them, that's an encouragement to them that God is at work in them. I mean, people can say a lot of nice things to you, but there's few things that will really really build your soul more than when somebody comes up to you and says, I see God at work in you. I see him, I see him changing you, or I see things, you know, him growing you. What an example they are for us. They're living under persecution. They're living in a secular city, and our society is becoming much more secularized, and, and tons of different temptations come along with that. Not to mention, similar to us, all kinds of false teaching that has infiltrated the church. People coming along, making promises that God never did or saying you can get this when God never said you could, you could have it. And once again, the Apostle Paul doesn't go, oh, poor you guys. Oh, poor you. No, what does he say? Keep going. Stay at it. You're on the right path. Don't, don't, don't let all these, this is other stuff is just noise. Stay on the path, keep going strong. And he acknowledges that their faith produced love. And, you know, in, a, in, a, in Hollywood, that's this gushy emotion or something like that. But, but in the Bible, love is often associated with and includes good works. And those, are, those are signs of someone's true conversion. It's interesting, in America, we, we tell people, oh, you, you want to get saved? Come on, come up front, say a prayer and you're in. Or you just meet somebody and you say, say a prayer and you're in. But in the word of God, these two items, faith and works of love, often walk together. They're often side by side. And it's in some ways, and I'm oversimplifying it, it's an important balance to keep up uh, because faith has us looking up to God And love has us looking around to extend the love of God that we have received to others. So we are just a funnel of God's love. Galatians 5, 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything. We might call that religious ritual. That stuff really doesn't really do much of anything, but faith working through love. So faith is our invitation, is our response to the invitation to follow Jesus. God gives us an invitation. He says, you can have your sins forgiven. You can have eternal life. And, and we grab a hold of that by faith. We respond to his invitation. And what does love do? Love, active love, it's a verb, active love proves that our faith is real. Interesting, verse 4, it says that he's going around and he's boasting to them about others. Now, he's boasting to others, sorry, about them to others. And he's not going around saying, oh, this church I founded, man, it's really spectacular. Man, what an apostle I am. A couple weeks there, a couple months there, and boom, instant church. Boy, I really know my stuff. No, he's not doing that at all. What is he doing? He's holding them out as an example of people who are ones who received Christ by faith and who are working out their faith. And he particularly draws attention at the end of verse 4 to their endurance, their endurance. Now, probably easy for us to think of endurance as I just grin and bear it. I just hang in there, oh, I'm going to endure, brother. I'm going to endure. But that's not what he's thinking about. As followers of Jesus, he paints a different picture for us when you read the apostle as, as God's desire for us to view suffering through the lens of an everlasting hope, through the lens of an enduring hope, while we're in the midst of 
great difficulty. Now, again, this is different for us in our way of thinking, but, but for many of us, when we get into difficulty, when we get into suffering, we wait for trouble to pass, don't we? We're like, oh, it'll be over soon, it'll be over soon. But Jesus and the apostles teach us to thank God in it for the simple reason that maybe some of the troubles that some of us find ourselves in may actually never pass. And you say, that's not very good news, Pastor Jim. But that is the reality of life, isn't it? Some things we have, we never know if they're going to ever improve. And so instead of sitting around being disappointed in our whole life that they're never going to improve, I'm not saying we don't pray they improve. I'm not saying, you know, I always pray, thank the Lord that I know he's healing me of uh, some of the disorders that I have, but, but, but I don't know if I will experience full healing in this life, but I can rejoice in the midst of it whether God changes that circumstance or not. William Barclay, who's a Bible commentator that I always warn people who like to read Bible commentators, read him with a lot of caution. Uh, but he's a smart guy, was a smart guy, and talking about biblical endurance said this, it accepts the blows of life, but in accepting them, it transforms them into stepping stones to new achievement. So what he's saying is that that as followers of Christ, what we are to do is when we come across these difficulties in our lives, instead of automatically chalking them up as obstacles, why don't we also see that within this obstacle, there's an opportunity. There's going to be some new level of growth, some new possibility some new way of depending upon or trusting in the Lord that we had not really done before. Now, it's quite possible, and I'm sure it is, that the Thessalonians didn't see themselves this way. They might have felt like, gosh, what a mess we are, and we are just completely wilting under the pressure. But, But again, as he often does in his letters, he didn't do it in Galatians. I think he was a little too mad in Galatians. But, but what he does is he acknowledges that he sees, again, he acknowledges that he sees the work of God in them. And not only does he see it in them and tell them, but he also has been telling other churches about it, about their growth in the midst of all this persecution. So he's boasting that persecution and problems didn't hinder their growth, it actually fueled their growth. It didn't set them backwards. They were actually moving forward. Now, I don't want to overstate the point, but this is such an important point for all of us to grab a hold of that our faith in God um, is demonstrated by our faithfulness in this life. We We can talk up our faith all we want, And we probably know people like that. They're always talking about how faithful they are and how much they love God. But boy, as soon as something goes wrong, they're on on vacation from God for a while. And so so again, our, our faith in God is demonstrated by our faithfulness in this life. And sadly, many of us have seen people fall away from the faith when when times get tough when things aren't, aren't going their way. Now, here's the question I'll get all the time. Uh, was their faith weak, or were they never really a follower of Jesus? Now, I'm not the judge and the jury. I, I really don't know, but the Bible clearly teaches about perseverance. And so here we see, in their case, they're under a lot of pressure, but they continue to persevere. So while I don't pretend to know somebody's heart or their status with God, I do know that faith is is a dynamic, continual trust in Jesus. Now, sometimes our faith goes through seasons. I get that. But it's important that we all realize that our faith is always moving. That's what I mean by dynamic. 
it's always moving. It's not something, uh, we, the word we use is static. It's not static. It's not standing still. It's either growing or it's declining. It's either yielding to the grace of God or it's not. It, it's, it's moving forward or it's, or it's moving backwards. And so verse 5, he draws a conclusion about their faith. He says, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Now, <laughs> if you read ahead, you thought that verse 5 is one confusing verse. Or you're right now, some of your eyes, you're like glazing over like, oh boy, how's he going to talk his way out of this one? This confusing verse is extremely encouraging. It really is. And so we have to really, it requires thinking in the sense that it requires us connecting some things that we normally would never connect with each other, particularly as Americans. And I'm not picking on us as Americans. I love America. I think this is still the greatest planet, uh, greatest um, country on God's green earth, on the planet, right? But, but, but we don't connect a lot of things here. So let's read this verse again. Which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you might be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. So here the Lord takes suffering, his judgment, worthiness to enter the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, and he ties them all together. Now, would you tie them all together? I wouldn't tie them all together. Now, you, you can't take a verse like this and people saying, well, I have to do this to be worthy of the kingdom of God. You can't take that and separate it from the rest of the Bible. We are clearly saved by grace through faith, but, but, but suffering is one of the ways, and being faithful is one of the ways that God counts us worthy. Now, we have to think of uh, a different way of thinking it than we think of like, well, I count you as worthy and you and worthy and you and worthy and you people in the back row, forget it, you lost your history, okay? But but let's think of it terms in more of accounting. I have accounted them as worthy. So why have I accounted them as worthy? Well, we know it starts with trust in Jesus, correct? But there's fruit of that. There's fruit of that where God says, look, I've accounted them as worthy. And 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 so what happens is, is that when we are faithful in suffering, it, it proves that we have an identity with Jesus Christ. It, it is proof, not as much proof to God as it is proof to us. Now, some of you right now are going, Pastor Jim, I think you've lost your mind once again. It's almost like you're saying that suffering is evidence that God loves us. I kind of think it is. I kind of think it is. I think that, that, that God is saying that one of the ways I'm going to love you is I'm going to let you suffer and give you the grace to be faithful so you can know you belong to me. So when your friends say to you, Why do you with all that you're going through, why do you follow that God of yours? And you're like, because I love him. Because he loves me. I have no other choice. Who but you, Jesus, have the words of eternal life. You see, he's pointing us here to the eternal purpose of suffering. Because endurance, remember we used that word at the end, in, in verse 4, that, that points to the reality of our salvation. If you can hang in there when things are really, really hard, that proves the reality that you belong to God. Philippians 1, verse 27 through 29 
The apostle writes, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and not in any way terrified by your adversaries. Now watch this. Which is to them proof of perdition. We're going to see more of that in a minute. They oppose the gospel. That is proof to them that they are not going to make it to heaven. But to you, your problems, what are they? But to you, salvation and that from God. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, like, like it's a privilege, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Now, let's understand what we're talking about here. Let's say, uh, you know, you're, uh, you're a drug dealer. Any drug dealers in the audience? All right, they only come on Sundays. <laughs> you're a drug dealer, and you eventually, you get caught. Okay? Um, that is the grace of discipline, if you're really a follower of Jesus. God, God is, is disciplining you. That is the discipline of punishment. That's not what he's talking about here. That's not what he's talking about here at all. Here he's talking about training grace, training discipline. You know, there's the discipline of, of a child when they misbehave. At least there should be. There's a discipline of a child when they misbehave. And there's the discipline of an athlete. They are not the same thing, are they? This is, this is the grace of training discipline. This is the love of God to make you more like Jesus Christ. So this kind of suffering works in us and for us, not against us. Hebrews 12 says, so we can share in his holiness. That, that's what he is working in us. You say, what, what in the world is the Lord doing? You ever find yourself asking you that? You're like, I didn't do anything. Why, how did this happen to me? What's going on? I didn't do anything. What is he doing? Eternally speaking, he is preparing you for heaven. That's what he's doing. What about here? He's drawing you closer to himself. Why does he want you to be closer to himself? Because he's preparing you for heaven. That's what he's doing. Odd as it may sound, Faithfulness in suffering is evidence to you that you will pass the judgment. It's evidence to you in your enduring faithfulness that God has counted you worthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because you've got to remember how much of this endurance is powered by grace. How much of this endurance is powered Powered by God. This is where we must get grace, faith, and good works in proper order. We need all three. But first is grace. Nobody just decides to believe on their own. We could argue all night at the diner about, you know, whether God supplies all the grace or 99.9999999% of it, right? But, but, but God provides the grace, and somehow, again, we could argue about all of this stuff, we respond in faith, and when we respond to God's grace in faith, part of our response is responding to his grace with good works. And it's so important that we understand that it is all of grace, but that does not negate the fact that God calls us to live faithfully. Let me give you an old example that might be helpful. Let's say you want to go to a Yankee game. You want to go to a Yankee game. Why do you want to go to a Yankee game? Because the Mets and the Red Sox stink. So you want to go to a Yankee game. And uh, how do you get there? Ultimately, how do you get into the game? Come back, baseball fans. 
you take your money and you buy a ticket. Is that correct? That's how you do it. I know some of you, you know, sneak in, but that you're, you know. You take your money and you buy a ticket. Here's a quiz. Don't answer. It's a trick question. What gets you into the game, the money or the ticket? Actually, both. Yes, both. But are they of equal causes? Are they of equal causes? No. The reality is it's the money that gets you in, but you must have a ticket as evidence that the price has been paid. That's what a ticket is. It's evidence that the price has been paid. So it's really the money that gets you in. In a similar way, Jesus Christ paid the price for our sins. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. No cross, no entry. On the same token, on the other side of the coin, no trust, no entry. However, living the Christian life, faithfulness in suffering, serving God is like the ticket. It's evidence that the price has been paid. Let's say that again slowly so we get it. Living the Christian life, faithfulness in suffering, serving God is like the ticket. It's not like the money. It's like the ticket. It's evidence that the price has been paid. And so the price has been paid by whom? By Jesus Christ. So from our standpoint, it's important to see God uses trials and tribulations to bring his people to what Colossians calls perfection or maturity. We use the term around here, motivated by grace. It means that Christ's love and work on the cross motivates us and empowers us to live the Christian life. And while it seems very odd to us, it seems the apostle thought that rewards for suffering should be a motivation for us too. And here is the Thessalonians standing firm in the midst of persecutions, and they will be clearly recognized by God. Jesus said this, Matthew seven twenty one. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So, so doing the will of our Father in heaven shows us what? To be worthy. Why are we worthy? Because of the work of Christ and the grace of God that is upon our lives and what God has done in our lives. So, there's the, grace of, the work of Christ and the grace of God, and there is our good works to get us into heaven. Are they of equal cause? No, not at all. But one is the result of another. Verse 6 takes us to the very different destinies of those who receive Christ and those who don't. Verse 6, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, the persecutors, and to give you who are troubled rest with us, you wait a minute, we're being persecuted. How can we get rest with them? Oh, they're, they're on the Riviera somewhere? No, he tells us how long. And this is key, when the rest is going to come in its totality. I'm not saying there's no rest now. I'm not saying there's no joy now. But when is it going to come? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So quite simply, what did he just tell us in those two verses? That God punishes the unrighteous and God rewards the righteous. It's just really that simple. He's going to punish the unrighteous, the people who give 
who are persecutors, and he's going to reward the righteous, those who hang in there. Now, when troubles come, this is a big complaint in the, in the Bible, and it's a big complaint everywhere. It seems like the bad guys are winning, doesn't it? And, and, and so when trouble comes, or others seem to have it easier, sometimes you're looking at other people and you're like, man, I'm following God, and every time I, you know, I, it feels like I get hit, I get knocked down on the canvas, you boxing fans, and, you know, they get me up to number nine, and they're standing, and I'm barely there, and next thing I know, I get popped again, I'm down on the mat again, but my neighbor, man, seems like everything's going great in his life. You don't know what's going on inside the house, but that's another story for another day. And so it, it seems for us that we have trouble, and for others it seems easier. But at those points in our lives, when we begin to think that way, it is so important to keep a proper perspective uh, on the Word of God. For us, the future can seem uncertain, can it? Now, Next week, Lord willing, we'll talk a little bit more about this. And we talked about it in chapter 4 and chapter 5 of of 1 Thessalonians, how some of this end time stuff, people are confused about the timing. We're not really confused. They just debate the timing. They don't know. But here's the thing. There's a lot of things that you don't know. Didn't you know that? And, and, And just because you don't know something doesn't mean that, that it's impossible. There's diseases years ago that we didn't have cures for, and they must have thought, oh, it's incurable. Now we're like, Pfft. you go to the Medi-Merge down the street, they'll cure it for you, man. You just you know, walk right in on a Sunday afternoon, you're out in a half hour, and, and they'll cure it for you. So there's a lot that, that we, we, don't, we don't know now, but we will know later on. I can tell you this when it comes to studying the end times things. As much as there is debates and there is confusion and there's all kinds of ideas and stuff like this, let me tell you something that I am certain of. God is going to get the ending right. Okay? We might be confused, but he's not confused. He is going to get the ending right. You can take that one to the bank. You can quote me on that one. And so here we see that God says he will repay all the wrongs of this life against those who trouble his kids. An interesting but sad side note is one of the ways, and we just sort of hinted at it in Philippians, one of the ways unbelievers express their unbelief is by persecuting followers of Jesus. So you know that guy at work who's constantly riding your tail or or that friend of yours at the at the family dinners, and they can't, you know, they lick in their chops. They watch three YouTube videos, and they think they're a scholar now, and, and and so they 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 want they can't wait to get a chance to take a shot at you, and and what are they doing? They're actually expressing their unbelief, and and we should feel sad for that. The the positive side of the coin is what awaits the faithful. What awaits the faithful is the end of trouble followed by eternal rest. It doesn't mean that, that we don't have again, that we don't have rest now, but, but eternal rest. When? He tells us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. And the big difference is whether you believe or not, whether you've trusted in Christ or not. In First Thessalonians, we saw for believers that was either going to be uh, death the timing of that would be death or the Lord Jesus coming for his church, which we know is the rapture and then the bema seat judgment where our works are judged and we refer to that as the day of Christ. For unbelieving people, it appeared to be later when Jesus is revealed in judgment. And again, remember it's important that, that, that the end times is more than just a single event. It's, it's a series of events. Technically, we're in the end times now. You know, we're, we're in, be, in the in-between stage between Jesus leaving and Jesus coming back, right? So, so, that, so, we're, so we're there. And, and, and rest, just, just feel that word for a minute. Rest. What a, what, a, what a word for stressed out Americans. But for a complete rest, that won't, we'll have to wait for Jesus' return. 
Now, if you're saying, I can't get any rest in this life, there's a word in, in the second verse here, in verse 7, that I find quite comforting, and, and it's the word revealed. You see, Jesus promised that he would never leave us or forsake us. Jesus promised that he would always be with us. And, and, and we think of when he's revealed, then we will see him. And part of that is, and, and it's, it's a complex thing, and we don't have, you know, all night to go into it, but we do have the person of the Holy Spirit residing within us. So the spirit of Jesus, as he, remember, he, the spirit of Christ, as he was called in Galatians, is in fact always with us. And, and so we think of Jesus coming from a place called heaven to a place called earth. But, but the Apostle Paul speaks of Jesus at times as being revealed to us in a very special way. And sometimes when you read your Bible or you sit in a Bible study or you hear some teaching or something like that or you're reading a book, there's just a new way that Jesus is revealed to you. If you will, the unseen becomes seen. The, the invisible dimension is revealed to us. Now, while it is difficult to rest from our sorrows, it is the Lord's desire that we learn to rest in our sorrows and we learn to rest in Him. And one of the ways we rest in Him is when He is revealed to us in the word of God, and we know he is with us. Romans 8.18 says this. It's interesting, the apostle Paul doesn't deny suffering as some of us do. You know, some Christians, oh, I'm fine, I'm fine. He, he has the proper perspective on it. He says, for I, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. He says, listen, I know that, you know, it's not great now. But I think of what's going on now. And I'm thinking about what's coming. And it helps me with what's coming now. And I know with what comes later, it's not going to really matter. Now, verse 8 is, is scary for persecutors, for sure. That he's coming in flaming fire. Now, that could be the, the Shekinah glory of God. It could be one of those what we call Old Testament theophanies, the appearance of, of God to his people. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God. Now, who would those be? Those would be the people who lack a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Boy, that should make us want to evangelize people, shouldn't it? I don't want to make them feel uncomfortable. That sounds very uncomfortable. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying there, there is serious consequences for unbelief. Verse 9, I'll read twice. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Let, let's go slowly. These shall be punished. What, what does it mean that these people are going to be punished? Literally, they are going to pay the penalty themselves. There will be a penalty for all our sins. Either our penalty is paid by Christ or it's paid by ourselves. Remember, we said that the, the, it says in 2 Corinthians that, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our sins against us. He was counting our sins, though. If you're a Christian, your sins were counted, but they were counted against Jesus. So either he says here, he says that they shall be punished. They're going to pay the penalty with everlasting destruction. Now, some people say this is something called uh, annihilationism. 
But, but the word everlasting means what? Going on and on and on and on. Annihilationism, you go in the ground and, and you know, believers go to heaven and everybody else just goes in the ground and that's kind of it. Um, I would say this leaves absolutely zero room for purgatory. Because you go to, if you're not, if you don't, if you, you don't know Jesus, you don't obey the gospel, you go to everlasting destruction. The idea is a dramatic loss or ruin or quality of life. Now, why is that? Well, actually, as frightening as it can be, the saddest thing is that for those who don't believe, he says, you go with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. You see, one of the things we know that the Lord is kind of holding this whole thing together. But we really don't know to what degree. You know, people say, oh, it could never get any worse than this. We get a lot worse than this. A lot worse. So we really don't know how everybody in this world is experiencing the presence of God. We know his presence is around, but, but we, don't, we, don't, we don't know for sure. So he says, while we know that believing people will go to be with the Lord, unbelieving people, he says, will be removed from the presence of the Lord into this terrible new existence where we don't know what that's going to be like. We don't, all they will experience is really, if you will, the influence of, of the judgment of God. Now, I know a lot of people like to believe that all except the very worst go to heaven, but these verses hold out little hope for that. I mean, look at the words that he uses. And again, these are, these are words that people go, oh, I don't like that stuff. These are words to make the un- unbelieving people repent. You know, you say, well, we don't want to make people afraid. A lot of us came to faith in fear. We were terrified. We knew we stood in the presence of holiness, and we know it was not going well for us. And, and we, were just, we were just undone, undone. Why don't we want people to go through that anymore? Why when somebody comes in and goes, oh, I'm, I'm terrified. I think I might be under the judgment of God. First off, you don't hear it anywhere. But, but oh no 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 why you don't say no 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 let them let them stay there for a minute let them stay there for a while it's a tough place to stand to feel comfortable isn't it it's a really tough place to stand and that's how everything changes I don't want to point to me sitting right there the other night talking to a young brother he said I was in my kitchen. All of a sudden, I realized the judgment of God was upon me, man, and I was sorry, and everything changed. Boom. That's it. That's it. Look at these words. Fire. Vengeance. Punished. Destruction. That is the loss of all that makes life meaningful. And interesting, this word vengeance you know, we, we tend to think of vengeance as revenge. You know, we tell people, don't, don't get revenge. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. But the Greek word of that, the Greek root of that word is right or righteousness. That it is, it is righteous of God to punish sin. And God punishes all sin. Either on Jesus or on people who, who refuse him. Listen to Ezekiel 33:11. Say to them, as I live says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. And listen to God's heart and evangelistic plea, for why should you die, O house of Israel? Why do you want this? Why won't you come to me and put your trust in me? Turn, repent, turn to me, 
Why should you die? Verse 10, he tells us what happens to believers when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, all those who have trusted in Jesus, because our testimony, the gospel, among you was believed. So now he completely turns directions. The tables are turned. He says, true followers of Jesus will come with him, reflecting his glory to the world. The Apostle John said, we will be like him. But ultimately, we will be glorying in Christ, our deliverer, in contrast to Jesus' enemies, who will not be glorying him in him when he comes for judgment. Now, there's similar language found in the Old Testament. We, we came across it in Isaiah 2 and Isaiah 66. And both Isaiah and the Apostle Paul write that true, the true people of God want to live for God. But, but both warn that just saying it, there's no evidence of it. You know, we should be really, we should be very concerned with ourselves if we don't have a desire to read the Word of God. We should be very concerned with ourselves if we don't have a desire to pray. We should be concerned about ourselves if we don't have a desire to serve God, to obey God. We should be very, very concerned if our approach to worship in the house of the Lord with God's people is very casual. We should be very concerned that we actually may not be part of the people of God. Jesus said to the religious leaders, I don't, I'm not telling you these things for any other reason than then that you would be saved. Yet notice, to participate, you must believe, and if you have, it will be evidenced by faithfulness to the Lord, and if that's the case, joy awaits. Boy, this is a, a great incentive to be faithful in, in tough times. It, it's, it's, it's a great incentive. Yes, we will see Christ's glory, but also we get to share in it by being transformed. Verse 11, he, he ends the chapter with a prayer. Therefore, we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of his calling and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. Probably talking about the Holy Spirit there. Uh, sanctification, becoming more like Christ, being set apart for Christ. And he tells us why in verse 12 that the name of our Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, again, it's very interesting. He doesn't pray for the difficulty to stop. But rather that they would be faithful in living out the plans and purposes of God. Now, here's something we all have to think about, and we're probably all very, very guilty of, and, and I know I am at times. When people are in a tough spot, we sort of relieve them from, from, from following and serving the Lord. Well, I don't want to put any pressure on them. Well, they're in a tough season. Well, they need to take a break. You know, the Apostle Paul doesn't do that. He didn't do that at all. He challenges them. All right, let's turn it up. Hell turns up the fire. We can turn up the fire because we got the fire of the Holy Spirit. And, and the living water of the Holy Spirit can just put out the snuff out the fires of hell any second he wants in our lives. I mean, this is classic Apostle Paul. What does he do? He brings us up to eternity. We're going to come back with Jesus. We're going to be with him in all his glory. And then what does he do? Then he takes us back down to earth. Why? Because he knows that our concept of the glory of heaven affects our Christian life here. 
He knows how we think about the next life affects our life here. He prays that, that God would count them worthy. See, hanging in there when the going gets tough is what this is about. It's not, it's not living a certain way to be saved. It's living the Christian life because we have been saved. And he prays for the work of faith with power. That the power of the Holy Spirit would be at work in all of us. And he says it right here, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is he telling us? That we will be counted worthy because of what God is doing in us. That's what it's all about. It's all about what God is doing in us. And that is the proper identity that a follower of Jesus must have. Christ in us, our only hope of glory. Now, I know we live in a world that talks about you have to have good self-esteem. How wavering and waffling is that? <laughs> really? My, my, my wife says last night went out with my son and his friend, and they, they had to get suits for work. And, and so I called her up. I was driving back, and I said, uh, they're at the mall. You better get down there quick. And she goes, why? I go, Young boys picking out suits? I don't think so. <laughs> so she calls me back, and, and she comes home, and she goes, boy, it's a good thing you sent me. <laughs> and she says, I was laughing, though. Um, uh, just how, how different girls and guys are, you know, um, picking out clothes. And, 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 and I was like, well, like what? And they're like, they try them one. I go, yeah, this is good. Whereas girls, you know, at 20 outfits, do I look fat in this? Does this make me look, my feet look big? Does, does, you know, do I look too skinny in this? Does this hang on me like a tent? I mean, all this stuff she's going through. Do you really go through that, ladies? I feel so bad for you. <laughs> I, I'm like, you're making me crazy. No wonder I, I said, I just buy what you, where would you buy me? <laughs> so, and, 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 and yet, that the, the self-image thing is up and down and up and down and up and down. But how stable is an identity in Jesus Christ? If you keep focused on him and what he's done for you and his stability. Now, that doesn't mean there's no human responsibility. In fact, despite what a lot of people want to talk about, the, the commands of God are all over the word of God. They're all over the word of God. In fact, dare I be so bold as to say, a lot of times you see commands and the grace of God involved in achieving the commands is assumed. Like he doesn't even have to mention it. He tells us to do something. We're not like, oh, how am I going to do that? No, he assumes, you know, well, of course you're going to need God's grace to do that. Why, why, why is God like that? Why does he constantly giving us commands, telling us how to live, telling us about his grace? I think because Jesus and the apostles know that, that our tendency is to take the ethical life too lightly. God's desire is to have Christ's character lived through us that other people would see something of Christ in us that we would actually see that we are changing in some of our own attitudes. It may not be what we want to be, but it's certainly not what we used to be. And so God's desire is that Christ's character would be lived through us, and God's desire is that would be our desire too. So the question is, are we willing to trust God to the point where we are willing to endure hardship for his glory? Are we willing to endure hardship for our eternity? Or is our present, in the moment, comfort more important to us? I don't want anybody to leave here tonight without making that decision. 
It's usually make a decision for Jesus. And that is an important decision you have to make if you've never made it. But make that decision tonight. Is, is, is your, are you willing to endure hardship for God's glory and for your own eternity? Or are you only going to hang in there as long as you're comfortable? Philippians 2.8 says this about Jesus. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Even Jesus had to live his life here on earth, trusting his Father. Even Jesus had to live his life here, putting his life in his Father's hands. Into your hands, I commit my spirit, he says on the cross. Even Jesus had to be willing to suffer for eternity. Even Jesus had to be willing to suffer to accomplish the will of God that God had sent him for. That is something that God wants for you. That is something that God wants for me. So God shows us here in chapter 1 that he brings trials so we faithfully endure them through the power of of the Holy Spirit, and God is glorified in and through us. That is the cross-centered life. The cross-centered life endures, perseveres for the sake of the cross, not the sake of our own comfort. And we are motivated by grace And how do we know it's real? Because not only are we motivated by grace, but we start showing evidences of grace. And God says, that's how you're going to know that you are, have been made worthy of heaven because Christ, my son, lives in you. Well, let's stand and pray.